one another, the movement of biblical community, and how Christ draws us together. You've heard the saying, I'm sure, that was made popular in the Three Musketeers, one for all and all for one, right? That reminds us of things, right? Reminds us that we're bound together at all costs against all odds. And we might think of that in various ways, whether that's from military units and teams or whether that's the Ryder Cup golf team or Cosby Athletics team this year that had many people going to states or Manchester's football team or whatever Clover Hills team is it's good at that I can't remember right now. Whatever the team is, right? They're one for all, all for one. Of course, then there's the Olympics, right? Might be the supreme, ultimate, one for all and all for one team together in the points in the competition, whether it's the four by 100 or whatever it is, and you're like, yes, go, and you're standing and screaming at your TV, cheering. Even the individual competitions are in honor of country and for country, right? And so it's one for all and all for one because you're in it with them. Which is why as soon as I mention this, you will have divided opinions. Gymnast Simone Biles. Is she a hero or a zero? Was she honorable or dishonorable in withdrawing from competition? Was it one for all or one for self? What I matter, what I think probably doesn't really matter to you, but I stand with her in it. And so immediately some of you are going, okay, good. And the others are going, you're a moron. Because social media is abuzz with it. And like, it's not at all difficult to find people on every side of the issue, right? And, be, and remember, that's the nature of social media. We get all of our information these days through social media, which is designed so that everyone has a say and can voice their opinion on right or wrong, and then everyone gets to see that opinion, of course, with algorithms catered to you to reinforce the echo chambers you want to hear, but then you see some of the other ones too, and what that does is cause great division. Not division that wouldn't have been there before, it's just that it's on your screen hitting you every minute of the day. And so we feel these divisions that run deep in our society, whether it's about the Olympics or even the church. And while the speed of information leading toward division is gigabytes faster than it has been even decades ago, the problem of deep divisions is nothing new. Paul addressed divisions in the church at Corinth. They had divisions over things like this. They were divided over which preacher was best and whom they should listen to and follow. That was all before podcasts and live stream. They were divided so much uh, and so angry at each other that they began suing each other in court instead of settling their disputes within the church. And Paul had to encourage them to settle them within the church. You may or may not follow the news, but that's exactly what's happening in David Platt's church in Northern Virginia. Another division they had was they needed correction on sexual immorality. And they also needed instruction on those refusing to engage in sexual intimacy within their marriages. They needed wisdom about divorce, and they needed advice on what to do when they were shopping in the market where idols were offered, and can we buy that or not? And can we eat that or not? How do we engage in the cultural marketplace? They showed favoritism during the Lord's Supper when they celebrated it in different ways. Um, 
by the rich people showing up early because they could and having a feast together while the poor were not yet there or were excluded and had it separately. And Paul's like, this is not, this should not be. You're one. You're coming together as one. They also had favorites based on which spiritual gifts people had and which talent they liked better and who they preferred. I like that one or that one. And so there's all these favorites, which leads up to this point in Corinthians that we're going to read today. Where after all those divisions, Paul gives these words. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 27. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we're all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Now, if a foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, uh, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we trust with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that... There should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word, that you will use it to sink deep into our hearts, to our soul, that it would shape how we think, what we feel, and how we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul gives all these instructions about divisions here, but he focuses on what unites them. And even as I gave you those examples of things that divide us, as a culture, and there are things like that, what I want to try to do is have us to consider how the church is united as members of one body, to focus on what, what, what it means to be united in that way. And so I have three points, and the first one is this. The principle of membership in the church is biblical. The second is the practice of membership in the church is unified diversity. And the third is the power of membership in the church is the love of Jesus. So the first point, the principle of membership in the church is biblical. Paul is making this argument here that we all belong to one body, just like the, the hand can't say to the foot or whatever, they're connected, right? We're all part of one another. 
And one of the things that a church has to do is, is, is show how people are connected. And to show how people are connected in order to define that, you also then define in which ways they may not be connected. Um, and so you ask a basic question, okay, who's a follower of Jesus? And the church has been given membership standards of who belongs to the body of Christ in scriptures. Jesus even talks about this. It's those who believe in him as the savior of sinners. It's those who love him and follow in his ways. I mean, that's the simplest part of it. And you think about when we do membership presentations, I mean, the most basic things are, do you admit you're a sinner? Do you need Jesus as your savior? Will you follow him? I mean, that's what we're asking. And will you do that in the context of this church? Right? And that, that's, that's what it means to be a member in the church in its most basic and simple form. Some people react to the idea um, of membership in the church and, and against it for various reasons. Right? Sometimes people have been hurt by the church. They're like, I don't know. It's just, I've been hurt before. And that's true. Sometimes the church can hurt. They've seen churches abuse power. Um, maybe, maybe you just have a strong independent streak and like, mm, I just, I do things my own way. I don't, I'm not going to formally join a church. Or you simply don't trust others. Or maybe you just think, like the, the tides of culture would suggest, is that everything and everybody and every organization should be all-inclusive. There should be no boundaries. Which, by the way, is complete and utter nonsense. It's, it's impossible to do. Um, let me just give you an example of that. Every organization has stated or unstated rules or structures that defines who is in and who is not part of the organization. It's the very definition of the word organization. It has the word organize in it. And to organize, you're drawing structure and boundaries of things, what connects and what doesn't. Okay? So even, even the all-inclusive Facebook and Google have community standards that draw lines and boundaries. You can get banned, suspended, kicked out, right? I mean, it, this isn't novel. This is just the way things work when you are trying to define what a group is. And so that's not wrong to have boundaries and in, in, in structures in place. The principle of membership in anything is not a bad principle. It's a good principle, and especially in the church, and it's biblical. But I will grant that the practice of membership can be messy, and it can be hard, right? That's why Paul's writing this book, to, the, the book of, uh, to the Corinthians, to the church in Corinth, because of all the divisions. He's like, look, it's gotten messy. And you guys got to learn to love one another well. And so that leads us to um, the practice of membership in the church, which is a unified diversity. Now, there's a lot more I could have said about church membership and, and why that's important, and, and I don't have time to say all that, but I did share both on the church Facebook page and on my Facebook page this morning an article about church membership and why it's important. So if you're curious about that, you're like, I don't know, I don't believe what he's saying, whatever, read that, maybe it'll help you. Um, maybe it'll help bring a little more understanding to it. But the practice of membership in the church is unified diversity. That is, Paul is saying, you and I, we're one body. We're connected. But one body doesn't mean sameness of every part. He says, but there's different parts and they all have different functions and, and operate differently. Right? And so we are different. The hand and eye look differently. They function differently. And not only is it hand and eye, it, it's, it's deeper than that even. Because you would imagine looking at yourself and going, well, yeah, my hand and my eye, I like both of them. They're great. I mean, I don't have any problem with my hand and I have no problem with my eye. This is perfectly acceptable. I like both of them equally. 
But what Paul points out, though, beyond the metaphor and what, where the actual diversity lies might be something that's harder for us to wrap our heads, heads around. Look with me again at verse 13. Let's put that verse on the screen. For we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Oh, and now's here where he steps on toes. Whether that's Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. See what he's doing right there? He says, okay, you're all one regardless of your ethnicity. Whether you're Jew, right? You grew up as a good Jew knowing the Hebrew scriptures in a very religious family for one God. Or you grew up as a Gentile, a Greek, very religious with pagan mythology and many gods, but not knowing the scriptures, right? No matter how you grew up with the Bible or not, whichever religion now because of Christ... By faith, you're united together. And it's not just their religion. Those are different cultures. I mean, Hebrew culture is very different from Greek Hellenistic culture, okay? Even with the Jews there, it's very different. So they have different cultures that they grow up in. And Paul's saying, yeah, your different culture, your different background, whatever it is, you're one body. In Christ, you're one body. Whether you're northern or southern, east coast or west coast, right? Whether you're from Africa, Asia, Europe, or wherever you're from, culturally, there's differences. But Paul says, it's like the hand and the eye. You've got to like them both. It's not just ethnicity either. It's sociopolitical status. Put verse 13 back on the screen again for me, if you would. Whether Jews or Gentiles... Slave or free, right? Slave or free. Now, think about this for a second. The free would be those who have rights and privileges, the slaves who don't have the same rights and privileges. And Paul's saying, in the context of the Greco-Roman world, those that have politically different standing and status, different economic status, Guess what? Hand and eye. One body. I mean, for us, what does that mean? It means at least we have to consider how we think about immigrants, how we think about citizenship, how we think about the wealthy, how we think about the poor. How would we think a slave would view politics and what things they might value? How do we think a free person with different rights might view politics and what things they value? Now, I'm not telling you exactly what that means and how that shapes the politics. What I am saying is that in Christ, Christians, even if they have different views on that and different backgrounds, need to listen to and understand one another because Paul says, you're one. Not the same, different, but one. Hand and eye. Got to like them both. Not like, oh, I don't like you, but we're one. Like, no, we learn to respect and love one another, even with our differences, because we are one. And that's one of the things that makes the church unique in society. When the church does that well, it'll be unique. It'll be a light in society. 
But it's not just that either. It's spiritual gifts that he talks about. We didn't even read these verses, and I'm not going to put them on the screen, but you could look back to right before the verses we read, to verses 7 to 10, and it talks about the different spiritual gifts that are given, right? And some of those things are um, wisdom, um, uh, faith, teaching, um, serving, administration. There's lots of different gifts that are mentioned there. And each person has different contributions to make to the body, and each of them are valuable, is what Paul is saying. You can't look down on one saying, well, you got no value, you're just a pinky toe. No. Try not having a pinky toe. It's probably difficult. I I have my pinky toes, so I don't know, but I've heard that it might be difficult. The other part about our spiritual gifting and the talents that God has given us to use are that those gifts, Paul is saying, are meant to be used and meant to be used for one another. You're like, yeah, of course. (laughs) But think about what that means. If your gift is serving, it's meant to be used to help the body. If your gift is teaching, it's meant to be used. Lead a community group, a Bible study. Lead Spring Run Kids. Lead, teach something. Use your gift. Teach jobs for life. Go to the real life uh, program and work there and teach people. Um, But use your gift. If wisdom or faith is your gift, use it. And here's the thing. This is what we may not think of. When you don't use your gift, you're actually hindering part of the body. Like, right, if, if I decided I'm only going to use my left leg for the rest of the service, okay, okay it's good. I'm going to be hindering part of the body. I'm going to get really tired because I don't have the other part that I need to stand here. When you don't use your gifts, part of the body is being hindered. It's not working the way it should. And the flip side of that is, When you don't allow somebody else to use their gift to serve you, you're denying them the ability to use their gift helping you. Here's what I... I just don't like to ask people for help. But if their gift is to be of help to others, then you're telling them your gift isn't that important to me. I just can't do it. I don't like to ask people for help. I I remember a, a, a friend of mine telling me, this, um, I said, uh, you know, I just, I don't, I don't want to ask for help. Uh, I don't want to ask, you know, for, for money for you to support this. And he looked at me and said, Andrew, if you don't ask me, you're not allowing me to use my gift to do the thing I enjoy and for which God has gifted me. I was like, oh, okay. Well, then I should ask. And if it's not your gift to help in that way, then you'd be like, you know what, I don't know if that's my thing, but I think I know somebody else who is. Let me connect you to them. And that's how the body works. Some of you have been waiting to become members of the church, and it's, maybe it's time for you to do so. Others may still be investigating the claims of Jesus, and you're not sure about, like, okay, but do I believe Jesus is the Savior of sinners yet? Am I ready to follow him? And that's fair. Like, you've got to resolve that first. Right? That, that's a key part of it. You've got to agree to the basics. And still others may fear being hurt or don't want to commit to something. 
Um, maybe you don't want to expend the energy to love, to risk being known and loved and thinking, what if I get hurt? And those are fair questions. Like, right, we're people. We're not perfect. We do things that sometimes hurt one another. Just like everybody else in the world does. Except for that we have a built-in system, the Spirit of God living in us to convict us of that, that should lead us to go and apologize and ask for forgiveness and bring reconciliation and restoration. And if you're worried about committing to something because of the cost of love and like, but if I, but if I give myself to, to, to something in that way, it opens me up to being hurt. I, I want you to listen to the way C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Four Loves. And I'm going to actually put this on the screen, this quote. So go ahead and put it on the screen. This is what he says. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. See, that's the way we're made. Yeah, we hurt because we love. But the solution to being hurt is not to not love at all. It's, it's not saying I can't love. It's to lean into it. Lean into it more. Figure out, okay, What does it mean to love people well? And here's where you as Christians, here's where the church has a distinct advantage in this. The third point that I want to talk to you about is this. The power of membership in the church, the power to do this, is the love of Jesus. This is something that that Christians have access to that enables them to love beyond differences across differences, to bridge boundaries and differences. The, the fact is, as Paul talks about this, the fact is you are united in the person of Christ. That's not even a question. It's that you are. You're one with Christ. And his connection is, since you, in fact, are one with Christ, you are also one with one another. It's a fact. You may not like it, but it's true. I hope you like it. I hope you love it. But he's saying, that's fact. That's what is. Because you are united to the person of Christ. You are bonded in his life, death, and resurrection. He has adopted you and his family. He has covered your sins. One for all. All for one. That's the church. And that means there's great power in his love. That means we love not just in diversity, but even in failure. We love even in failure. A key question for any organization, going kind of back to what I talked about earlier, is, okay, you can talk about diversity and have diversity all you want, but how do you deal with failure when people compromise whatever your diverse standards are? How do you handle that? And Jesus instructed his followers, the church, to forgive, which is radically different than what other organizations seem to do because we live in a cancel culture. And if you're not with them... You're out. And Jesus says, no, we're creating a restoring culture that turns the world on its head 
And they go, how does the church do that? And the key is the power of love of Jesus that is reflected and resounding in all of his followers. It is a love that both honors and suffers with others. Let's put verses 25 and 26 on the screen, please. Notice it says here, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. When you're honored, we rejoice with you. That's fantastic. When, when things go well and you've used your gifts wonderfully, we rejoice and celebrate you. Thank you to all the volunteers who use your gifts and help us do what needs to be done as a church to minister to one another, to minister to kids, to minister to adults, to minister to those here, to minister to those that are out there. Thank you. We rejoice in that. When you get job promotions and recognized in society for service that is well done, we rejoice with you. You've been honored. Well done. When you suffer, we suffer with you. When you experience loss, we grieve and cry with you. Because you're part of the body and it hurts us too. Love is not a mere emotion or feeling. Love is an action. So questions we ought to ask ourselves are, do you love others? especially the body of Christ, do you love when they're riddled with disease? When their mental health is weak? Do you love when they've been hurt and wounded by sin? Or when they have sinned against you and hurt you? Do you love? Do you love when you have no guarantee that they're going to love you back in the same way? What about when you disagree, when the the social media echo chamber does not help you to listen to the other person and understand? What do you do? Do you love? Do you you say, okay, what I need to do instead of just seeing things on social media is sit down over a beverage or food together and listen to my friend, listen to my brother or sister in Christ and try to understand where they're coming from. And you may not even agree in the end. But what would be different is you have taken time to say, I will listen to you, which communicates love, and say, I can respect, even if I disagree. Now, there's issues of sin, right, where we all then are called to say, that's an issue of sin. That's where we've got to turn to Jesus in it. But in so many of the things that are differences, the very baseline of it is not an issue of sin. How we treat it becomes one because we don't love each other well. And when you sit down and you listen, you've understand, you've respected, and then you can say you're loving others well. And the church can be that bright light that says not everybody's the same, but we love well. You may think I'm pushing the limits a little bit of what it means to love one another and members of one body and stuff, and, and that's fine. You, you can think that. But I just want to ask you, what comes after 12? Thank you. Somebody's listening. 13. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 13 does, in fact, come after 12. All the rest of you have just been educated by a child. Thank you, children. And chapter 13 comes after chapter 12. And in chapter 13, Paul follows up this one-body analogy with what that looks like. 
with the chapter we like to call the love chapter. And he's talking about the body of Christ and the way they should love. And I want to read to you 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. Love is patient. Mm. But gigabytes happen so fast. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love. That kind of love isn't simply me telling you to dig a little deeper within yourself and just figure out a way to love somebody. Because that kind of love is hard. All of those things, that's not easy to do. Christianity says you don't have that within you naturally. Not fully. Everybody's got capability to love. But the kind of love that loves like that, that's a deep love. That's a love that comes from outside of yourself. It's a kind of love that exists, and we know because Jesus loves us that way. So when you struggle to love someone, it may be because you've grown tired, you're weak, you're weary, you're numb. And what you need is not simply to dig deeper within you, but you need to be awakened by love in order to love. You need to be awakened by Jesus, by the Spirit of God, with the kind of love that God has that can resound in you and through you to others. Listen to the words again with the name of the one who is love inserted. Let's put them back on the screen if you would. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 7. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You see, when you believe that that's who Jesus is and that he loves you that way, then that love starts to echo within you. It starts to resound and come out like beautiful music to others. And that's where we have to anchor ourselves, finding the power to be the body of Christ in the love of Christ. So when you're struggling to love your spouse, your kids, a church member, you have to locate the power for that kind of love in Christ. Subordinate yourself to his love, which begins to resound through you. Decades ago, at a meeting of the American Psychological Association, Jack Lipton, a psychologist at Union College, and Scott Bullion, a graduate student at Columbia University, presented their findings on how members of various sections of 11 different major symphony orchestras perceived each other. Fascinating. The percussionists were viewed as insensitive, unintelligent, and hard of hearing, yet fun-loving. 
String players were seen as arrogant, stuffy, and unathletic. The orchestra members overwhelmingly chose loud as the primary adjective to describe the brass players. Woodwinds seemed to be held in the highest esteem, described as quiet and meticulous, though a bit egotistical. Interesting findings, right? Interesting findings, to say the least, with such widely divergent personalities and perceptions. How does an orchestra ever come together to put beautiful music together? The answer is simple. Regardless of how the musicians view one another, they subordinate their feelings and their desires to the leadership of the conductor. And under his guidance, they produce symphonies masterpieces of music. As you see, Christians, it's the way it is with the church. As we subordinate ourselves to the love of Christ, we follow his example, his service, and the church becomes beautiful. So whatever your differences, come together at the cross and at the table as we celebrate communion today. Bring your sin and find forgiveness. Bring your cultural differences and learn to understand one another better. Bring your different talents, gifts, talents, gifts, hurts, your honors, your sorrows, and your joys, and learn to love like Jesus. Because you and I, we are members of one another, one body, in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will... Help us to be people who love well, people who will be one body, and to demonstrate that love, that it would resound like a symphony. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. At this time, our 